Let's open our Bibles to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, and we're going to try to give you some introductory thoughts on this book before we get into the uh, meat of the matter. The first chapter, and we'll read a few verses just to get started on it. Let's read uh, verses 1 through uh, 4, if you will. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will, at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it it shall be according, uh, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now let's stop there. You give in verse 5 on down the description of how it was to be done. Now before we deal with the burnt offering here, or the offerings at all, in this book, I'd like to give you some introductory thoughts. Uh, the opening words of the book are, and the Lord called, uh, and it's from uh, these words that we have the name of the book in the Hebrew terms, called, and it's W-A-Y-Y-I-G-R-A, meaning, and called. And the Greek version of the, of the Septuagint and Latin Vulgate have given the title Leviticus to this book, this uh, third book of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five writings of uh, the Bible, which means five. That's where we get our word Pentagon, five-sided building. And uh, so we have the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, I had a good teacher in the seminary that taught me the Pentateuch, the first five books. Now then, when we're studying this, we need to realize that this name is given uh, by all the modern translations, and its subject matter has to do with the laws of worship and priesthood. Worship and priesthood. And all all the priests were designated by God as having to be from the tribe of Levi. The priest was of the tribe of Levi. And the book is especially intended to be a manual for the priests who were to teach the people the laws of worship. It was as important for the people to be taught as it was for the priests to know what God required of them in their worship. The message of the book is what we might say, including the introduction. Uh, In the book of Exodus, we see Israel brought out of Egypt to meet with God at Mount Sinai, and God came down to meet them with them and to dwell with them in the tabernacle. Now, with God dwelling among His people, it became necessary for the people to be instructed as to how they might draw near to God and worship Him. And that's the purpose of this book of Leviticus. A people that's already redeemed from Egypt to worship a holy God. And it answers the question 
that Job put before uh, others and said, but how can a man be just before God, righteous before God? That's Job 9 verse 2. And we're, we're taught here how a man can be righteous or holy before God in, in these studies. And we study the book, some suppose it to be dry and meaningless. We find a full and deep meaning of the truth of God's redemptive purposes uh, and of His grace. And really, he says, You shall be holy for the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19, verse 2. The Israelites must be a separate from, and separate themselves from sin unto God. And that be devoted to God and separated to God, or sanctified, if you want to put that way. It's true that holiness is taught in the book of Leviticus. And it's true that it's ritualistic as far as they're concerned, but behind this ritual that they went through, it gives us the basis of spiritual truths which apply to us now as a redeemed people and how we're to be holy. We're redeemed out of the bondage of sin and would enjoy this experience of a holy life and that's what we're to do. And there are two main divisions in the book. It's well to keep them in mind as we study and the first division is the way of approach to God, and that's chapters 1 through 16. And the second division, the way of abiding with God, chapters 17 through 27. And the great central truth of this book is the great day of atonement. Everything in the book is related to that, uh, that day of atonement. And we deal especially with this kind of a division in the book. We gave you two main divisions, but let me, let me break it down a little more. In chapters 1 through 7, you have the offerings. In chapters 8 through 10, you have the priesthood. In chapters 11 through 15, you have a holy God must have a cleansed people. Chapters 16 through 22, you have atonement and also showing the relationship and walk of God's people with Him. And chapter 23, all alone by itself, you have the Feast of Jehovah. You have Jehovah's Feast. And then chapters 24 through 27, the rest of the book, you have instructions and warnings. And I can repeat that again for you. And I will do that right now. The offerings are chapters 1 through 7. The priesthood, chapters 8 through 10. And a holy God must have a cleansed people. That's 11 through 15. Atonement, chapters 16 through 21. And it also shows the relationship and walk of God's people with Him. And then in chapter 23, you have the Feast of Jehovah. And 24 through 27, instructions and warnings. Now, there, there are three main things, if you want a threefold thought now. You have a sacrifice, you have a priest, and you have a place of worship. Three things we need to keep in mind. Just write three little things down. A sacrifice, a priest, and a place of worship. A sacrifice, a priest, and a place of worship. Now, the key word to this whole book is holiness. And you find it 87 times. 
holiness. And a key verse you'll find in in uh, 19 verse 2, in chapter 19 and verse 2. Let me read it for you. 19th chapter of Leviticus and verse 2. This would be the, a key verse that you need to think about. When God spoke to Moses, He said in verse 2, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. That would be the key verse. In fact, Peter refers to it over in the book of 1 Peter. He said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In fact, that would be a good place to study in the New Testament this same uh, verse of Scripture. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay, uh, so we've given you a few things about the introduction of this book. And uh, probably we could repeat them again and again and it would still be uh, hard to get them down unless we have them in writing. And uh, so I try to do the best I can to give you an idea of what you find here. Now, there are five offerings here in the early chapters where we talk about the offerings. And, and remember this, that the three of these offerings are called sweet savor offerings. Sweet savor offerings. And two of them, two of the five, are non-sweet savor offerings. Now the sweet savor offerings are, and I'll list these for you, and this is what we'll study in detail, is the burnt offering, We just read about that. We didn't say much about it already, but the burnt offering. The second one is the meat offering. The third is the peace offering. Just write burnt, meat, peace. Those are called sweet savor offerings. And then the two non-sweet savor offerings are the sin offering and the trespass offering. Sin and trespass. These are non-sweet savor offerings. Now then, as we study these, you're going to find that the offering is mentioned in chapters 1, 2, and 3, along in there. And then the law for those offerings are mentioned in chapters 6 and 7. Because each of them have the law. That means the directions for doing the offering itself. So, you really have it overlapping. You have the offering mentioned just like the burnt offering mentioned here. Let, let's look at verse 3 and we'll talk about it. It says, in his off, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice, see that, of the herd, and tells it will be without blemish and so on. But to get the law of the burnt offering, you have to turn to chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. Now I'll give you the... When we study each offering, I'll give you where the law of the offering is found. So it's not just in one place when it's first mentioned. You have the offering mentioned in the early chapters. And then you have the law of that offering in chapter 6 and also some of them in chapter 7. We'll get to that as we we look at it. And when we start studying them individually, you'll find that that uh, is the way that they'll be presented. They'll be presented the offering itself, whatever it is, the burnt offering or the or the meat offering or the peace offering. And then you'll find the law of it 
over in chapter 6 and 7. So we'll study, really, the early chapters in conjunction with the law of it in chapter 6 and 7. And that simply means the rules for making that offering. That means all the details of it. And that's the way it's listed here in Leviticus. Let me just give you an example of how the New Testament applies to it. I've already given you that before. And uh, we'll turn to, turn to Ephesians, if you will, chapter 5. And I've given, given it to you several times to show you how it has more than just a single application. In referring to Christ's death on the cross and His offering for us, for sacrifice, for sin, you have both a non-sweet savor offering and a sweet savor offering in this verse. Now look at it. Ephesians 5 verse 2. Now we said you have a non-sweet savor offering and a sweet savor offering. Let me read it. It says, Ephesians 5 verse 2, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, now look, and has given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Now look, if it's for us, it's for our sins. There's the sin offering. And that's a non-sweet savor offering. And it says, An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the, the sacrifice to God was like a whole burnt offering for a sweet-smelling savor. So in this verse alone, you have the application of the sin offering and the whole burnt offering. The sin offering, a non-sweet savor offering. But the burnt offering was what? A sweet savor offering. So you have in this verse in the New Testament, both of these offerings consisted in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So when you, when you think of Jesus and His death on the cross, it touches more than just one thing. When you go back to those offerings that we're studying in Leviticus, you'll find that it touches, this very verse touches what? The sin offering and the whole burnt offering. One of them is for us, for our sins. The other one is unto God as a whole burnt sacrifice. So, as a sweet-smelling savor. In that one verse. So, what, are you, what we're saying here, that in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, you not only have a whole burnt offering, Jesus offering Himself up to God, and God being satisfied, and it went up to God as a sweet-smelling savor, but it was also for our sins. Even Isaiah touches on that. It says, When he shall offer up his... Isaiah 53, listen. When he shall offer up his soul a sacrifice, that sacrifice for our sins, that God will be well... He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You see how Isaiah develops it? He does the same thing in prophecy. Let's look back in Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And what I'm doing is trying to give you enough introductory thoughts so that you'll grasp the meaning of what 
Christ's death really means when we start studying all of these offerings. Now, Isaiah 53, look. It says in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, look, he shall see his seed. He's going to see the results of him offering himself for our sins. In other words, his spiritual seed, the ones that are saved as a result, later on because of Christ's death, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So it speaks of resurrection and his spiritual posterity. Now look at verse uh, 11. He shall see the travail of his soul, that's the travail of his soul, for our sins, and shall be satisfied. Because this offering is not only for our sin, but it satisfies God. And he shall be satisfied. A sweet-smelling savor unto God. And it says, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You have the combination of the sin offering and the whole burnt offering that Isaiah prophesies of the death of Christ. Isn't that an amazing how, thing how that all the Scripture ties it together? And it's not just one thing that we're looking at. Some, you know, a lot of people, they, we see, and rightly so, we see Jesus dying for our sins on the cross of Calvary. But do we see the other side of it? That God is well pleased and satisfied with it because He presents Himself fully dedicated to God as a whole burnt sacrifice and therefore it's a sweet-smelling savor unto the Father? How can that be? Because Jesus fulfilled all these types and shadows to the very T. Isn't that hard for us to realize that there's more to Christ's death on the cross than just Him giving Himself for our sins, which is wonderful and great? But even when we come to the trespass offering, the sins of ignorance and the sins that we commit after we're saved, after we're saved from the penalty of sin, we see in the trespass offering Him providing for our, our sins that we commit later on. So that's why John says in 1 John chapter 1, he says, listen carefully. It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our, of our sins. And the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth. The word means a continuous cleansing. Cleanseth us from all sin. So, how many times have you heard people says, say, yes, Jesus died for my sins that are past and paid the penalty for my sins, but what about the sins I commit in the future? He, he died for those too. And He made provision for those too. Isn't that an amazing grace? That's amazing grace, isn't it? That He not only took care of our past and the penalty, but He took care of our future. And by the way, all your sins were in the future when Jesus died. Even the ones you, you have committed since you've been a, a Christian, since you've been saved. And don't ever say because you've be, become a Christian, you're born again, that you never had any more sin. The Bible says if we say that, we make Him a liar. Right? 
and His Word. His truth is not in us. Look in 1 John chapter 1, and it'll tell you that. Let's look at it. 1 John chapter 1. <clears throat> now I want you to notice what it says here. It says, if we, verse 6, let's pick up with verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now look. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now look. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at verse 8 again now. If we say that we have no sin... Now, this refers to the principle of sin. Not committed sin. The principle of sin in our lives. The principle. If we say we don't have the principle of sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Now look, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need confession. Now look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, this is sin committed. This is not just the principle of sin. This is the principle plus the committing of it. Because of the principle of sin, we have committed sin too. If we say that we have not sinned, that means committed sin. We make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. How do we make Him a liar if we say that we have not sinned? Because the Bible says we have. And we would make him a liar. So you see, you have both the principle of sin and sin committed here. But yet, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Both the principle and the committed. Both the fact that we are sinners and deserve the penalty upon us, and the fact that we have committed, and there's provision for that. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, let's read it. Drop on down. He, uh, John continues to say, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. Encourage not to sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sins. John included himself, didn't he? And... Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, I, I like to... It may be a poor illustration, but think of going up in an airplane without a parachute. Now, it doesn't mean that just because you're up there, you're just dying to use that parachute. You're just just anxious for something to uh, go haywire with the motor or, or uh, get in a storm and have to bail out. No. You're not really that anxious to use it. But if you're up there and you need it, it's better to have it, isn't it? So, I think about sin, you know. He says, these things I write unto you that you sin not. John says, I just hope you don't have to use that parachute. It, and it may be, as I say, a poor illustration, but it might make a little, little bit of sense of the point. But he says, if you do, you've got it. If any man sin, 
We have Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The word propitiation, remember when we studied in the tabernacle? The mercy seat, that's called propitiation. And He's the propitiation. He's the mercy seat. He provides for the provision of our, for our forgiveness. If you want more on that, turn to Romans chapter 4. Turn to Romans. Chapter 3 would be better. Then. Let's start with chapter 3. And this will probably make the point without continuing. Let's look at uh, verse uh, 23 now. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now look, verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the foreparents of God. So God has set Him forth, put Him forward for us to be the propitiation for our sins. Now look, on down in verse 26. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He, that is God, might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So you see that because Jesus is a propitiation for our sins, look at it carefully, very carefully and thoughtfully. Because He is the propitiation for our sins, that He paid the penalty for our sins, then God is just in forgiving our sins. He's just in justifying the believer. Just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Now then, let's, let's try to give you some thought on that. Suppose that just because God is merciful and God wants to have sympathy with lost humankind, He said, well, I'm just going to forget about their sins. God wouldn't be just. Because sin, to be just, sin has to be punished. But God found a way to punish our sins and to, therefore, He could be just in forgiving of our sins. See See the point? He is just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So for the believer who's trusted Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sins, God is just because the penalty's been paid. And the only way, that's why the, the person who does not repent of sin and accept Christ is going to have to suffer the judgment of God. Because he didn't receive Christ, and Christ paid the penalty. So, that's, that makes it necessary that the unsaved person receive Christ as their Savior. That makes it absolutely necessary. And essential. Because God is just. And God being just, He will punish sin. Right? He will judge sin. And the Bible says, the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin is going to be punished. But it already has been for those who will believe in Christ. And trust Him with their soul. Trust Him 
uh, as their Savior. And I don't know about you, but Jesus is the only hope I have. And His work on the cross is the only thing I can rely upon. You can't rely upon anything else. Some people say, well, you know, I'll, I'll just be the best kind of guy I can be. That's not good enough, friend. That's not good enough. Or I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, try to live by the golden rule. That's not how many have lived by the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the way it's usually quoted. That doesn't mean that's all of it either. But anyway, that's the way. You know, say, I'll, I'll just learn to treat people right. Well, that's good. That's part of what you ought to be doing. But that's not going to save you. Salvation is of the Lord and is of His sacrifice. Why would we sing the song, The Old Rugged Cross? Why would we sing, Redeemed by the Blood of the Lamb? Why would we sing some of these songs about redemption and, and uh, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Revelation chapter 1, I believe it's verse 7, He has saved us and washed us from our sins by His own blood. I'm going to see if I've got that 5 or 7. I think it's 7. Sometimes I have to check up on myself because I don't see you doing it. And if you don't do it, I'm going to have to make sure that, that I haven't... It is verse 5 instead of verse 7. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. That's where we get that song, Washed in the Blood. Now then, uh, so He's loved us with an everlasting love and He's washed us from our sins. So, when we're studying these offerings that we'll get into, we'll study them in detail back in Leviticus. And we've already found a couple of instances at least where, where you can see uh, in Ephesians 5 verse 2. Did you write that one down? And also Isaiah 53 where you find Isaiah prophesying of the fact that uh, there's both things involved in Christ's death on the cross. Not only His sacrifice for our sins, but how it was pleasing to God and satisfactory to God. He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. And by His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. You have both of the things pointed out there. You see, this kind of teaching is what Paul is talking about when he says, Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He says, I'm not feeding you with milk anymore as babes, but this is the strong meat for God's children. And I believe that most of you that are here tonight have grown to the place that, that you can eat this kind of uh, solid food from God's Word. I mean, some of the things that I've taught tonight could not be grasped by some of the uh, babes in Christ. They would not grasp this. And that's why I'm proud of you that you study, that you learn God's word as we're teaching it, and go along with it, because uh, 
It will give you strong, solid food. Remember, Paul said to the Corinthians, he says, uh, I, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. He said to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5 also, and uh, both to the Corinthians and in the book of Hebrews, you find these thoughts about meat. And uh, then Peter says, as newborn babes, First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So the babes need the sincere <clears throat> milk of the Word. And by the way, the word there, sincere, means unadulterated. It's not mixed with water. Do you ever uh, mix water with milk? That's not a very good combination. And I'll, I'll tell you by experience, you don't mix it with grease and put it on the skillet either. I had a skillet yesterday uh, that I put on the drain and I thought it was completely dry and I put a little grease in there. When I, and man, I'm telling you, you won't ever drop of the grease of the the water out of there when you start heating up some grease in the skillet, because it'll spark all over you, and it'll burn you. So anyway, I finally had to pour that out and start over from scratch and make sure I had a dry one to start with. But I mean, just a drop or two, it'll just sputter and, and spark. Well. God's Word has to be free of any being watered down. As newborn babes desire the sincere, that means unadulterated, milk of the Word, the pure Word of God, that you may grow thereby. And then, of course, uh, as you come to be stronger in Hebrews chapter 5, look over in Hebrews chapter 5, and you'll see what it says in verse uh, 12. It says, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So, so in the Hebrews here, Paul is telling the, the Hebrew Christians, you ought to be teachers by now, and you need to go back and learn your ABCs. It'd be like in our schools today uh, for someone that's going to take uh, algebra or calculus and you tell them, you need to go back and, and learn general math and learn your, your multiplication tables. They don't even do that. I don't know. Do they do multiplication tables anymore in school? Up to 12 at least? Up to 12? 12 from 12? 144? Did they go that far up? Well, that's good. I'm glad that they do that. Because I think some schools have lost sight of the, the, the rudiments and the fundamentals, the basic things in our schools. And uh, anyway, I'm glad that, to hear that some of them have not. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we used to have to learn those things. and So many are neglected nowadays. You had to learn them to go from one class to another. Now they, I think they get tired of one in the third or fourth grade or fifth grade anymore and say, well, we're going to pass them anyway because I'm tired of looking at that face. and Maybe they'll have a new teacher next year. 
pass them anyway because they're afraid of offending someplace. That's right. Then maybe that's what to do. Pass them anyway because you don't want to offend any offend anyone. So anyway, we're we're dealing with different situations, aren't we, in life today in some instances. But uh, what I'm pointing out is that um, you still have Hebrews chapter five. It says. And are become, last part of verse 12, become as such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. <clears throat> and the, the word there means he, that he doesn't have any experience in the word. Not very much knowledge of the word. It says, for he is a babe. He's still a babe. Isn't it, isn't it a shameful thing to see people that have been Christians for... 10, 15, 20 years that are still babes. That's what Paul found in, in the Corinth church, in the church of Corinth. They had been Christians a long time. And they were still babes. They need to grow up. They need to get off the bottle and start eating solid food. And so he goes on to say, but strong meat belongeth to them that are full age. That means more mature or habit of perfection, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. They understand a little bit about the Word. They know uh, some things that are uh, they need to be there, that they're being taught. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you'll find Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for this very same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. He says, I fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able. And he tells why they were not able to bear it. Look at it. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? In other words, when you become more mature, you'll grow out of being envious and having strife and divisions in the church. That's why I believe we have more a more mature church because we do not have this envy and strife and divisions. Wouldn't that wouldn't that account for a more mature church? It certainly would. Because if you don't have those things, they're more spiritual. But if you have these fellows flying at one another and divisions and strife and everyone uh, getting on the other fellow's case and not uh, giving everyone equal uh, respect and not trying to keep the unity of the Spirit, Paul says, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace... Boy, you have that in a lot of churches, don't you? You look around you and see how many churches that have that. Well, what does it mean? It means they're still like that Corinthian church. They're like babes. I think we have a more mature congregation than that. I'm glad that we do. And I'm thankful to the Lord for unity and harmony and love in the church. And it goes on to say, he says, uh, 
For while one saith, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who is, who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed? Even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Remember that God is the one that gives the increase. And that means that we labor together, right? He goes on to say, So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. They have one purpose. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Every man will receive what he's done. But it says, For we are labors together with God. And he says, Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Two things. Like a farm, or husbandry, or vineyard, and building. Both these things. And then Paul says, He's a wise master builder. And he's laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And he says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, we build our life of service and work upon Christ. And every man has to do his own work. And every man will receive his own reward. But we're to labor together in doing it. And in a local church, we need everyone laboring together. And that's the only way you're going to find any growth in, in the church. And when we're doing that, we'll, uh, we'll find that God will bless us for it. Well, let's see. I just kind of got started on this, but our time is gone. We're going to have to close. We'll pick up with the burnt offering and we'll talk about these offerings. And we'll give you the... When we start studying the offerings in chapter 1, after I've given you this much introduction... We'll start studying the offerings of burnt.